This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It's been more than three months since thousands of asylum seekers, many of them from Venezuela, started to arrive here in Chicago. The treacherous journey often involves crossing a jungle, hiking through mud, fording rivers, and trekking through several countries before finally being loaded onto buses in Texas and then sent here. Block Club Chicago and Borderless Magazine reporters have been following some of these migrants for a series called After the Buses. They wanted to learn how do asylum seekers feel now about this journey and where they've ended up and what's life been like for them since they've arrived. Block Club's Madison Saavedra is one of the lead reporters on the project and she joins us now. Welcome, Madison. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You and your colleagues, you've been following seven migrants and a family of three. Tell us what you set out to do specifically. So we wanted to put faces and names to this largely, you know, nameless, faceless group of migrants that Mm -hmm. have been arriving to Chicago from Texas over the past few months. Uh, You know, we were seeing that in a lot of the local and national level stories, it was a pretty generalized view of these people. You know, they were referred to just as almost like a monolith or a group of people as if all of their experiences and emotions and thoughts were the same. So we wanted to take that to a hyper local level, fitting with Black Club's mission, uh, talk to these individuals, spend a lot of time with them, getting to know who they are as, Mm -hmm. you know, people, fathers, sons, friends. Um, and, you know, help the public really get to know who these people are. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned hyper-local there. Where did your reporting begin? Uh, I would say it began kind of figuring out where or what temporary shelters people were staying at. You know, the city turned a lot of, like, hotels and previously vacant buildings into, you know, emergency housing Uh One of the biggest ones was a Salvation Army shelter in Humboldt Park. Uh, I would say that's where it kind of began, just since there were so many people staying there, you know, so many single men and families. Um, But it really took us all over the city. One of my, you know, colleagues reported on folks staying in Westridge at a, you know, previously vacant YMCA building. Um, You know, one guy was staying in the suburbs at a hotel. So it really took us everywhere. Wow, all over the place. So how open were the migrants to sharing their experiences with you. Was that a little bit of a hurdle? Yeah, I thought it would be, and I can't speak for everybody, like all the people who worked on this project, but for me, I was really surprised at how open a lot of these people are. You know, I almost think of it like, sometimes it's cathartic to tell somebody your story, um, especially a lot of these guys are here alone. They don't have their family. They're maybe making new friends. So it's nice, I think, to have somebody approach you and ask you about yourself. Um, But also the fact that they trusted us with all of this information over a period of time meant so much to us. Like that cannot be overstated. And most of the people that you highlighted, Madison, uh, in, in the series were men. Now, is that because majority of the asylum seekers were men or were they just more willing to talk? I'd say it's a mix. I do believe that a majority of the people who come are single men. You know, usually they're leaving family behind because they either want to bring them later or they're sending money back. Um, So I'd say it definitely reflected the demographic of people who arrived. And they were a little bit more approachable in that, like, people were hanging out outside the shelters or outside the hotel. Um, So that's just kind of the way it worked out. Mm -hmm. So I want to zero in on the family that you talked with, right? So uh, Tomas and Carmen, they left Venezuela because back there, uh, the couple worked three jobs between them, and they say they still could barely afford a meal a week for their family. Wow. What's their journey been? 
Uh, well, so that story was actually tackled by my colleague on the project, Ambar Colon. She was fantastic. Um, you know, it's they started their journey out in Venezuela, but they did end up in, a, in another South American country where their daughter was actually born. Um, and they, you know, their story was pretty similar to a lot of people's. They had, you know, jobs there back home, um, but even that, yeah, wasn't able mm-hmm. to, it wasn't able to make it work. But they knew they wanted a better life for their daughter, so they made that journey even having a little you know, young baby who, you know, needs and even more than an adult. A heck of a journey it was from Peru, then uh, Ecuador, then Colombia, through the jungle, mm-hmm. mostly on foot, uh, you know, a few spare rides. Now, of course, they're in Chicago. So their two-year-old daughter actually suffered from a swollen belly after drinking contaminated water during the journey. Getting her medical care has been difficult as well. What can you say about that process? So I I can't speak too much about it, but I do know from Ambar's reporting that they've had some difficulty finding hospitals or clinics to take them in because of, you know, their status of where they're at, you know, in this country. Um, I think it's a it's a shame. So they were being turned away from. Yes. Yeah. Turned away. Basically, I think people said from hospitals. Yeah, we can't really help you. Um, There's not much we can do. Um, But I think they're I don't think they're going to give up. You know, who would? Right. I mean, if you need medical attention. Yeah. So there's been an ongo- uh, ongoing outpouring of, of support from churches, community groups as well here in Chicago. You spoke with a young man named Nolram about arriving at a church that was housing migrants. Let's listen. Here in Chicago, when I arrived to the first church where they brought the buses, there at the entrance was the flag of the United States and a Venezuelan flag. So that voiceover was uh, Reset Production Fellow Michael Liptrot. So, Madison, there's clearly an intention to be welcoming to the migrants. But beyond this church, what's Nolram's experience been in Chicago so far? It's been pretty up and down. I'll say that Mm. he's managed to get some temporary work, some part-time jobs, just from friends who have maybe a little bit more steady jobs and are saying, you know, kind of throwing him some hours of work. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time... He's definitely faced some difficulties. He was actually hospitalized back in October um, because of a fentanyl overdose, accidental overdose. Um, But he was in the hospital for, gosh, a little over a week, maybe almost two weeks. And that really set him back. You know, he kind of lost those temporary jobs. And he has since been able to find another one. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it was scary. Yeah, in like I said, he's alone in this country, so or not in his country. His sister's in New York, but alone in Chicago, and, and friends couldn't visit him at the hospital, you know, because they're not family. Of the the folks that you talked with, how many of them would you say have been able to find steady employment? I would say a major, you know, steady employment. Probably not many. I think only a handful have been able to find maybe full-time jobs. These sound jobs. like temporary jobs, yeah, mostly. Yeah, I think most of these are part-time jobs, like maybe working just a couple days a week or just a couple hours a week. Um, and I don't know how long they necessarily last, like if it's going to be something they'll have for a couple months or if they're even able to have it for a couple months. Um, you know, because these folks technically, they're not, they're not supposed to be working, but how else are they supposed to survive? This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about what life's been like for the thousands of migrants who were bused to Chicago in recent months. Our guest is Block Club Chicago reporter Madison Saavedra. And you can read the stories of the asylum seekers online. They're at blockclubchicago.org or borderlessmag.org. 
I want to pull another voice into the conversation here. Nicole Hallett is the director of the Immigrants' Rights Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. Hi, Nicole. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking with Madison about how hard it's been for these migrants to find work. You and I talked about this before on Reset. Just remind us why finding a job is just such an obstacle for asylum seekers. Well, when you're in the United States in um, a precarious immigration status, you you don't necessarily have work authorization. Only certain people who are in the United States can actually legally work. And employers are required by law to make sure that people have work authorization before they offer them jobs. And so for many people who are coming uh, and who um, are hoping to... uh, get a job, send money back, it's going to be very hard for them to get a job because many employers are not going to want to hire them without legal work authorization. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't find work. They often do. Uh, Sometimes that work is... is temporary work, as, as you said. Mm-hmm. It also tends to be very low paid uh, because employers know that people without work author- authorization are going to be desperate for work. And so they are they offer to pay people less. Um, and so for all of these reasons, for many, many folks coming across the border, unless they have a way of applying for work authorization, it's going to be very hard for them to find um, steady, well-paid employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, How long does it typically take, you think, for a person to get work authorization after they arrive here in this country? Well, I should say that not everyone is 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 eligible to get work authorization. Um, some people who are being paroled into the country might be able to temporarily get a very short term work authorization. But as soon as their period of parole expires, that work authorization will expire, too. And um, also, if you apply for asylum, you can uh, apply for a work permit after six months after you've filed that application. But it, not everyone is eligible for asylum and many people do not apply. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting to have a better life for your family and to send money back home, home those are all very un- understandable reasons to want to come to the United States, but they aren't going to be the basis of an asylum claim. Yeah. And so many people will le- be left without any access to to work authorization at all. Yeah, and I'm thinking that many of them are arriving under, uh, not having much of an understanding about how the system works when they step off these buses in Chicago or in Philadelphia or in New York. Is that right? Sure. How would they know? I mean, most people in the United States don't know. Um, and so, of course, people coming from elsewhere aren't going to understand how the system works. They know that that there's opportunity here. They know that there are jobs here. They, they probably don't understand all the technical details about how to get work authorization, whether that's even possible. So um, I'm sure that lots of people are surprised to learn that they're not going to be able to work legally once they get here. You know, I'm, I'm wondering what's behind that mandated waiting period that you just talked about, because a, a person still has to eat and pay rent. And, and in order to do that, you would have to, I assume, work illegally just to be able to get by. We had a a guest on the show before, uh, Johannes Javi, uh, from the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants, and I remember he called the system a setup. What's your take on that, Nicole? 
Well, the, the reason for the rule is just simply that the government doesn't want people applying for asylum so that they can get work authorization. Um, there, there was concern when that law went into effect that people who were not eligible for asylum were applying just to get work authorization. Um, and, um, and so they put this six-month requirement in essentially to try to deter people from pl- applying for asylum or at least trying to make sure that um, it wasn't seen as, a, as an easy path to, you know, instant employment. So that's the reason. I mean, the, the problem with the rule is that it penalizes everybody. It penalizes uh, people with, with valid asylum claims, um, you know, so, uh, and certainly it's, it's, it's impossible to live in the United States for six months yeah. without some form of support. Um, and so it does set people up to work illegally. Um, and that's the system that Congress has, has, has set up because they care more about trying to deter fraud mm-hmm. than they care about making sure that people can support themselves. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Madison. You said you wanted to put a face to the people who were making these national headlines because of essentially a political stunt, right? Let's be real. How did it put a human face to the story for you? I think meeting these guys, you know, the the men that I followed, yeah, they were mostly young men and just talking with them. And, you know, when the interview would be over and we'd just be kind of chit-chatting about what they do every day, you know, they're just, you know, it seems redundant to say, but like, they're just like us. Like they do things that my younger brother likes to do, play soccer, talk about music. They want to explore the city. Um, They were so excited to go visit Lake Michigan. And, you know, the guys who were staying at the Humboldt Park shelter, they loved going to visit Humboldt Park and seeing the lagoon and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So even despite this wait for work and all these things that they were dealing with, morale seemed okay among them? I think at times, yes, you know, of course, yes, you're going to get down, you know, they're separated from their families. And everyone said they missed their families, they missed home, even though they obviously had to leave their home for, um, you know, extenuating circumstances. But I think that everybody did try or tries to find moments for a little bit of joy. And everybody was optimistic about, you know, coming to Chicago. Okay, even if they didn't, you know, know too much about it. I think the image they had in their head of, you know, a sanctuary city and immigrant built haven, that just bred a lot of optimism. So, Nicole, what do you think the experiences of the migrants in Chicago have revealed about the way that our economic system works and this so-called American dream that with hard work, anyone can make it here? Well, I mean, the the statement about the sanctuary city, I think, says it all. I mean, I probably Chicago would like to be able to allow these people to work because um, because we are a city that welcomes uh, people from other places here. But it's the federal government that makes these laws. And so even though Chicago may be uh, a city where people, you know, want to come and they want to be able to contribute. And there are many, many immigrants here. It doesn't matter um, because the system is set up for them to fail. Um, so, um, you know, we, we'd like to talk about the American dream, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that our immigration system is set up so that many, for many people that is unattainable. So briefly, where do you recommend people turn to for help navigating this asylum process? 
Well, asylum is a very complicated process and people really should not be going through it alone. And so what I would recommend is that if possible, get in touch with some of the nonprofits that are working in this area to see if you can find a pro bono attorney. The National Immigrant Justice Center is the largest of those organizations mm -hmm. in Chicago. And while people can apply for asylum by themselves, they are much more likely to be successful if they have um, the help of an attorney. We've been speaking with Nicole Hallett, the Director of Immigrants' Rights Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School, and Madison Saavedra, Southwest Side reporter for Block Club Chicago. You can read the stories of asylum seekers at blockclubchicago.org or borderlessmag.org. Thank you both.